the road to recovery. You might be cruising down it. A friend or family member lost on it. Or the road is, well, still under construction. Relevant Recovery Radio is about getting to that destination of normal health, mind, or strength. Now, Relevant Recovery Radio, here to give you the keys, Heather and Donnie Mosier. Hello. Hello. Welcome to this week's episode of Relevant Recovery Radio. We're your hosts, Heather and Donnie Mosier, and we're so grateful that you're listening and spending time with us today. I'm back full time. Yeah, I'm not so grateful about that part, but... Uh, I want to say that this show is sponsored by the Matthews Hope Foundation. Uh, We have a wonderful detox and recovery program. The detox portion is located inside St. Joseph's Hospital downtown. And then if you complete our program, we also have two years of free recovery support, recovery coaching, aftercare, uh, relapse prevention app, so much more. Um, And so we really care about restoring the fullness of life to every person who may be struggling with drugs or alcohol. So if you or a loved one would like any information about our program, please give us a call at 844 Two six three four six seven three. That's eight four four and hope. Or you can visit our website if you'd like any information about our program. There's a whole bunch of information on our website. It is www.mhdrp.org. Mahurpadrp.org. Where did you come up with that sentence, by the way? Which one? That didn't sound Oklahoma at all. We're going to restore the fullness of life. I think it's like our motto or something. Really. <laughs> I thought maybe you would just come up with that. I was like, oh my God, she is coming no, out of Oklahoma finally. No, that's no, that's can't be get out of me. Uh, but no, that's, it can't <laughs> there be. There you go. <laughs> and just, she's I just back. Oklahoma did it. And no, she's back. I'm saying that's our, we, that's our mission is to restore the fullness of life to everybody. It's I just like website. it. it. It caught my ear. Uh, oh. I don't know if you've said that before, but I liked it. And <clears throat> so you're checking us out in Houston on KPRC 950 Sundays, 1 p.m. Central. If you're not in the H, you can check us out on iHeartRadio on the KPRC 950 Channel. app at 1 p.m. Central. Or at the end of the day, they upload all of our podcasts uh, or all of our radio shows to a podcast. And you can listen to us from the beginning if you have nothing better to do. So you can go to iHeart, download it. It's a free app. And you can just search Relevant Recovery Radio and you'll see all of our past episodes. They get uploaded Sunday night around 7. And another yeah. thing you can do is check out our Facebook page. Uh, How are those questions coming? So they're coming in. So we're going to okay. do a Q&A episode, which will be the first Sunday of February. So that is when we're going to do it. First Sunday of February. And so okay. you have from now until then to message us through the Facebook messenger page of yep. Relevant Recovery and submit your questions about addiction, alcoholism, uh, recovery, 12 steps, whatever questions you have, submit it and we will read and answer your question live on air, first name only, or you can be completely anonymous. If how, you, if you just how are the questions coming in? Are they, are they good? Are they interesting? They're long. Yeah, not like paragraphs. <laughs> yeah, but, okay, but okay. people are in pain and they're trying to give me a synopsis of what's going on with their family member or whatever. Okay, so, all right, I like it. Um, there's some really great questions, so I'm excited to do that episode, but I'm also excited about who we have in studio today. We should finally get to our guest, maybe. Who? <laughs> we welcome Taylor here. Welcome to the show, Taylor. Thank you very much, uh, Donnie. Don't talk trash on Oklahoma. <laughs> <laughs> are, are you f- from Oklahoma, too? Yeah, Oklahoma City. <gasps> She's from Hera. I've yeah, I'm familiar. We've had that talk. I don't uh, even remember. See, I tell you, things yeah. just leave my brain. So I'm gonna have to correct two people's grammar today. Okay. No, all right. Taylor's more sophisticado than I am. That's for sure. <laughs> Are I you think... speaking Spanish? 
people mistake soft spokenness with intelligence all the time. So. <laughs> <laughs> so Taylor, you and I are friends, um, but you also work at Matthews Hope. Tell us what you do at Matthews Hope. I do. I'm uh, one of the chemical dependency counselors there. Um, right now, I'm an LCDCI. I'm working through my hours and. Um, yeah, I work with the clients every day. So that's super cool. So I wanted to have you on to tell a little bit about your story and, and all that, but also the bridge that we work so hard at at Matthew's Hope to bridge like the spirituality and the clinical together and, and coming from 12-step recovery ourselves and then trying to go into the treatment industry and figure out how that mm-hmm. applies and all of that. So did you, were you, you're an alcoholic. I'll just go ahead and. Wow, know. are you labeling him? <laughs> That that is correct. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I mean, it's a good thing for you. So for for our listener, was it because you're from Oklahoma too? Because that's why I am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, Oklahoma helped. How how long now? Um, you I assume were born and raised in Oklahoma. No, no, no. I was born in California. I moved out to Oklahoma when I was young, but um, I did like all of high school and everything out there. So did so you, it's ingrained. Did you yeah. set out to just I want to grow up and be an alcoholic, or how'd that happen? No, um, honestly, I was always kind of a stoner, and I thought drinking was silly in high school because all my friends, you know, Oklahoma parties at the lake and stuff, yeah. I thought they were stupid. Um, but then I got to college and I drank, and the first time I drank, I, I blacked out, and yeah. then I went, oh, and then since then it was, that was the goal. Yeah. So How old were you? I was about eighteen. Okay. But really, moving forward, it was. Early on, it was, oh, if I can't black out, then I'm not going to drink tonight. Drink to oblivion. Now, now, how old are you now? 35. 35. And how long have you been sober? Uh, almost three years. It'll be three years at the beginning of March. Okay. So you, so we're talking drinking and drugging from teen years until early 30. Yeah, 30s. I got sober okay. at 32. Okay. 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 And so was it just alcohol or like what time was it? Was it drugs too? What was your experience with that? Uh, I'm a, I was a very opportunistic drug user. Um, I like to do <laughs> cocaine a lot. I really like psychedelics, um, but it was sporadic. You yeah. know? I didn't yeah. seek it out. And I mean, that was probably for budgetary reasons and things like that too. But yeah, it was always alcohol. So did you drink every day right away or just it was just every like a binge every so often? Almost as soon as possible. I moved to <laughs> Oklahoma City from Lawton pretty close after I graduated I didn't last long in college and I was on my own yeah I have a friend named Ryan that guy I work with mm-hmm. he's from Lawton oh yeah that's yeah. weird yeah and so as soon as I had my own place at 18 and a half 19 it was every day game on yeah and so what was that progression of the illness looking back now like uh allergy obsession right away or allergy first obsession later how did you spiral I knew from a very very young age that I was an alcoholic in the sense that once I started I couldn't stop yeah um, I had knew physically the craving, but I had always fancied myself smart and was an egomaniac. So yeah. the mental thing never really clicked with me. Yeah. Was the was the craving thing also so like for me when I was younger, it masked as I could drink everybody under the table, look at the amount I can drink. We used to say I'm a professional, I'm not <laughs> an alcoholic. This was a badge of pride. Right. Right. I remember yeah. thinking in when I'm in younger years, I could out drink everybody just because I'm Irish and German and I just thought I was so proud of that. Like, I had no idea I was a budding alcoholic, you know? Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, whenever it started to spiral, once you moved out, mm-hmm. how bad did it get? It was just instantly kind of all day, every day. I'm kind of blessed in the fact that I've always had a good work ethic and I've always liked working, so I kept a roof over my head. And so you were like a high bottom? You never lost everything? No, it got bad at oh, the end. Oh, got bad later. Okay, yeah. we'll get right. to that. We'll take a quick commercial break. Don't and- go anywhere. <laughs> we'll be right back with Relevant Recovery Radio.
Welcome back. You're listening to Relevant Recovery Radio being broadcast throughout the star system. Okay. We now have listeners on planets all over the galaxy. And we have our friend Taylor, who's a LCDC. You hate when I make those jokes. Okay, so where we left off is that Taylor was unfortunate enough to be dropped off in Oklahoma. (laughs) As, or, Or you had a family or you were just dropped there? Uh, my mom is from Lawton. Uh, oh, wow. And raised, and she did the I'm not going to college, screw it thing, and moved to um, California. Okay, all right. Okay. So then you end up, so you're back in Lawton. Yep. Uh, you find drugs and alcohol, suddenly starts to feel right. Yeah. And now you've moved out on your own. Yeah, I moved up to Oklahoma City. I was, you know, I worked in the restaurant industry always. That was an easy way to get around, and I ended up doing that until I got sober. But um, it was just very accepted to drink and drug it was part of the thing especially being young and invincible so we drank at work we drank during work Mm -hmm. we drank after work um i drank with the people i worked with and that's just what we did and it was very functional um it was very a part of the culture of everything and so that was kind of a sustainable way to live for Mm -hmm. all of my 20s until it wasn't until it got bad i find that's actually common a lot a lot of times as we work with people and a lot of times working in the restaurant industry, being uh, alcoholic or addicted to cocaine are two of the most common things in the food industry. Well, I was going to say, like, as a chef, you're in the kitchen. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that that cocaine is accepted, right? It keeps you going. It probably depends on what where you work. Yeah, I mean, we would sometimes in restaurants I had worked in, we'd get pitchers of beer, like, towards the end of the night. and mm-hmm. Or we would get drinks that were messed up in the well. They would give them to us or, you oh, know, nice. we would just pass oh. it back to the guys. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, I mean, that's actually like a big passion of mine is eventually I want to be, find a way to get recovery into the restaurant industry better and help out people. In I think it's needed. I think it's, it's such an unaware thing. You know, I didn't I know what treatment was. Right. Um, well, because like like bartenders, for instance, like uh-huh. wi- women bartenders. <laughs> I don't want to cross Where are you these going two. With this? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't, don't think you cross, should do that. <laughs> I don't want to cross Stop. these. Well, so let's just say Stop. bartenders in general. Yeah. Let's yeah. Do that. And then you have the entertainers yeah okay these two fields you want to party with your people yeah. right they're gonna spend more if you're having fun and so i think it's really really hard to be a bartender and not drink now we know people we that know are several in the program bartenders right for sure but, but i would think the draw to get in there and do the drink and the drugs with the patrons is really strong to be kind of in that mode right yeah, and the restaurant I opened, for example, I put on the bottom of the menu for $25, you can buy the staff, kitchen staff, a round oh, of beers. Yeah. Oh, I love it. So by the end of the night, they'd be like, you got eight tonight. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, that's like, so great. Person, you know what I mean? So <laughs> it was just wow. it was the part of the thing. I saw that in a, on a menu in Denver. Wow. Right. That's back, a cool. So, so what, what, uh, what set off you wanting to get sober at all? Yeah, give us give us the spiral. So you're probably, what, mid-20s at this point, mid to late 20s? Yeah, and I went on and, you know, I, I ended up... I was married for four and a half years at the end of my twenties. Yeah, I didn't yeah, know yeah. that either. And and all of this stuff, I was doing everything on paper good. On paper, I looked great. But it didn't I was... end with a Dateline episode, did it? No. Okay. All right. Just checking. <laughs> Shut up. Let him tell his story. No, but like, uh, but off off camera, you know, off the side, <laughs> not on paper. I was miserable. I yeah. was not. Uh, you know, every bedevilment, I checked like a box and I saw this, of course, in hindsight, but like I was prey to misery and depression. I couldn't, I was of no use to anybody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My entire identity was put in what I did. So if I didn't have that, I was worthless and I just drank. Yeah. So eventually the physical part of it just 
spiraled out of control to where it was just bottles and bottles of bourbon. And then I switched to gin. My logic here, you'll like this, was <laughs> bourbon gave me such radical heartburn that I was having to drink peppermint oil every day. Oh, wow. So if I switch to gin because it's clear, I won't get heartburn. Oh. And then well, I was so drinking almost total a half sense. gallon It'll make day. sense to Donnie. That makes total sense. So I couldn't, okay, I can't burp. People yeah. laugh at this. I literally, I, it's physically, I've never <laughs> been able to, to burp. to the next part of the story, <clears throat> honey. So if I drank beer, of course, it fills your stomach with air and I would get sick. So I couldn't eat if I drank beer. So I just couldn't drink beer. So I just went straight to liquor. Oh, yeah. But then then you had the whole thing about Crown, uh, you know, and then so you switched to something else because Crown Royal was- I really thought I was blacking out every other night because of Crown Royal. I thought that was maybe like high sugar content or something. So you switched to something else. We become chemists and and biologists all of a sudden. (laughs) I was a regular drug addict, like, you know, but I relate to- I love that you say you were a regular drug addict. Like, I didn't drink like that, but what I'm saying is a regular- You were a scientist. What I'm saying is (laughs) drug addicts know the cold water extraction method, or they understand bioavailability, or they understand that sort of stuff when you're an opiate addict. Here's what I am. Here's what I am. I'm a basic middle class guy who grew up in the suburbs who did alcohol like a respectable person and some cocaine. Who ended up in the 12-step world. But you were an Oklahoma scientist who started using lingo like bioavailability my and how to is, break pills down. I'm my like, oh point my God, is I don't even know what this is illness. about. All three of us. All yeah. three of us. Same we illness. We learn well, what true. we need to learn to get better or more efficient at what we're trying to do because I think somewhere back in our head we know this is bad and it's dangerous so I need to understand it better so I can figure out how to do Mm -hmm. more of it because I I, surely I can't stop so so how did you get sober what was the um I knew for about three years before I actually stopped drinking that like rehab was the end of my road you know knowing nothing about recovery um I had been in and out of AA since 2009 when I got my first DUI and I would always go when I got in trouble and I would you know basically attend these meetings and never participate until whoever was mad at me wasn't or my papers were signed right. or whatever. So um, my solution to my problem, because it had gotten so bad, was go to rehab. Yeah. That mm-hmm. was all. I didn't didn't know detox was a thing or anything. So Did, did anybody like push you into that? Did, was that something that, that you came to the conclusion on your own? Was there like an intervention, something like that? Did, I, I learned later on that there was going to be. Um, <laughs> my sister went to bat for me, but... So you uh, preempted all that. You were just enough, like what was going on inside that would cause you to be like, okay, I've had enough. It just, there was like an incident at the end where I, I fell out of this bar and, and busted my head open and my sister was having to drag me across mm. the street. It was just this big deal. And I woke up at late at night. My mom was there and she took me to the hospital. Mm-hmm. And at like five in the morning when I had finally sobered up and had gotten stitches and everything, it was just kind of <laughs> like, what do you want to do? Yeah. And I just went. I need to go to rehab. Mm-hmm. It needs to be 90 days because I got 30 days on my own like two months before. Okay. Okay. And so you I, had made you, an attempt. Yes. But you drank again. Well, no, I, I, I say, hang on. I got a 30 day chip. <laughs> okay. Okay. But I also had a medical marijuana card. Oh. Oh, you were California sober. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh. Very much. I and mean, I was very proud of that. But, okay. but I How'd said, that work out for you? It, it didn't. I said, I, I need to go to rehab. It needs to be 90 days uh, and it needs to not be co ed. And that was my stipulation. Okay. Wait, can I clarify something, though? What? Are you saying that marijuana doesn't work as a maintenance program? Well, it did not for me. That's oh. absolutely I keep hearing that from people. Yeah. It's weird. <laughs> but it's what's so cool, weird. now that you are a counselor at a rehab, yes. Do you and, and looking back at your experience, do you think you've had a better successful shot at sobriety because you chose to do it and you were not forced or pushed by your family? Oh, good question. Absolutely. Um, and why? 
I I wanted to be sober for a long time before I got sober, but I think the reason that it stuck is because I just stayed involved. Mm -hmm. And that does not mean that I was happy about going to rehab the first 30 (laughs) days out of the 90. I was just treating it like a prison sentence. I was arguing with everyone in the classes because, you know, I was still smart. Yeah. Right. I still my ego was there. But intellectual pride. I still wanted what I wanted, but I was in enough pain where I was trying to have my cake and eat it too. Like, make me not alcoholic, but I still want to be an egotistical, cocky, you know, all this. So it wasn't until the breakdown of that attitude where I found recovery. And so when you went to rehab that time, have you stayed sober since that time? Yes. Wow, he's like you. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there were, over the decades, multiple, multiple, multiple. Him too. Yeah, on my own. Always on my own. So that's... That's my experience, is that I spent 10 years, a decade, trying to quit drinking on my own. Therefore, when I finally, through a friend who 12-stepped me, finally made the decision, I knew without a shadow of a doubt I could not do it on my own. Like, I was convinced. I knew I was screwed, no matter what. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what I was saying. Like, I had tried and failed so much, so often tried every little trick I could think of that I knew rehab was in my future. I just never had the guts (laughs) to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you went to this rehab, was it 12-step friendly? Oh, yeah. Did you enter 12 steps right away? Oh, yeah. Um, okay. In fact, shout out Casa Kalina in Waxahachie, <laughs> Texas, man. I, I owe that place a lot, and I go back for their alumni events and stuff, so it, oh, it's a that. big deal. Yeah. How cool. You should send, once we get done with this, you can send your counselor a link. So listen, don't go anywhere. We're going to be right back, and we're going to we hear a little bit more of Taylor's story. questions and, yeah? and, and stuff like that, so don't go All anywhere. Right. And probably some more sarcasm from Heather. We'll be right back. <laughs> Listening to Relevant Recovery Radio. You did that on purpose. What? Yeah, you. I was going to bring us in. You did that on purpose. It's co- I did not. You're listening to Intergalactic Relevant <laughs> Recovery Radio. So, no, welcome back. So, uh, what a wonderful surprise. We have Taylor in the studio today talking about his 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 past, his history, his experience with um, alcoholism and getting sober and what that looks like. And so far, where we're at is... You had to leave Oklahoma to get sober, which I understand. I'm married to an Oklahoma, and I don't. I know how that goes. Um, <laughs> but you, you, uh, you get sober. So you decide to go to rehab. You had tried on your own for many times and could not stay sober. So you finally knew that was the answer. You get yeah. to rehab. So what was like the biggest impact when you're now you're in rehab? What was what did you learn? What was the biggest impact? What was going on in your life? So I'll say like. Like I said, I went to 90 days, right? The first 30 days, I was bucking the system. Spirituality was dumb. I was smarter than that. So what I did is I had books on the neurobiology. And I'm, you know, I'm a scientist, right? I'm yeah. going to figure this out. And and that wasn't helping me. Yeah. I loved the information. Yeah. I love the knowledge. It's fun to study. But I decided that I had to start giving other things a chance or the next 60 days were just going to be like a prison sentence. Right. And, yeah. I, and I wanted it to be at least beneficial, you know. And, and so I... I started paying attention to the spirituality side stuff. Yes. And that was the part that hung me up because I really was obsessed with the why. Why am I like this? Why am I anxious? Why can't I stop drinking? There has to be some kind of scientific why am I an reason. Alcoholic? Yeah. Like what's wrong with my brain? Yeah. But the reality is, was the answer to that was in the spiritual part of the program. Mm-hmm. 
The problem is, is I still had a problem with that. Yeah. So what I did was concede to keeping my head down and start doing the work. Yeah. And the spirituality, I was blown away with how that kind of followed, Mm -hmm. you know, and how I had a really great sponsor um, while I was in treatment that took me through the steps, a guy I love. And he um, he really broke that down, you know, explaining to me like the decision to go get help is spiritual. Mm -hmm. I couldn't equate words like prayer or meditation to you know when i'd hear prayer i'd hear to jesus christ i don't believe in that or i would hear meditation i was like cross-legged on top of a mountain yeah these things had you had ideas backing every one of those preconceived notions yeah prejudices attached to a word exactly and Mm -hmm. i was keeping me from how open the program can be how Mm -hmm. open spirituality actually is correct and how beneficial it is for yeah. everyone to have. Yeah. When do, why do you think? Because I I sponsored a guy one time who was hung up on that. So he had went he had gone to the park, which is a rehab here in Houston, mm-hmm. and they I guess they talk the science part of your brain because I guess they need that to convince some people or to help people. Anyways, he got hung up on that on the science rather than I guess the solution. The yeah, because, well, because, you know, here's what my first sponsor said. This is what I love about your story because my first sponsor said, "Okay, listen." The why. Why do I have this? Why does this happen to me? And he said, listen, if you're sitting at home on the toilet and you have diarrhea, the why you have it doesn't really matter. What are you going to do about it? (laughs) Exactly. And that's a great analogy because in that moment, it doesn't matter. In that moment, I had to get sober. I wanted to get sober. I was in pain. And I was so focused on the why of everything because I was so overanalytical. And that was a big problem. It was keeping me from being vulnerable. It was keeping me from being spiritual. It was keeping me from being emotionally sober. I think that that's one of the most important takeaways that people will get, hopefully, from this episode, is that the why you're Mm -hmm. an alcoholic or drug does not matter, but only in the sense there's no solution in it. But it's what are you going to do about it if you are one. And the truth of the matter is, is that science doctors, they they keep thinking they might know. And literally, I have heard um, um, DNA, genes. I've heard all these genes switched on, switched off. They don't really know, no. but I actually embrace the explanation in the book. They call it a phenomenon, yeah. right? The phenomenon of craving is called phenomenon because they can't explain it, and I'm good with that. Exactly, and I think that that spiritual solution is what it takes to get out of it, mm-hmm. right? And I think that they're segueing into like me obsessing about the why with everything in my life. That's just how I am. I mm-hmm. analyze everything. It was what got me into clinical work That's what because I, was about to I like ask to you. be. I like to study it. It, It's fascinating to me, really. That's where I started. So that being said, I think there's a lot of relevance into doing things like looking into your trauma and your childhood and your past. But for me, and this is my opinion, but later. Yeah. First things first. First things first. We have diarrhea. We got to take care of that right now. (laughs) Yeah. So let me. Yeah, I agree. Next, we can get our stomach looked at. Yeah. So was there a turning point for you that you remember something impactful that happened either near the end of rehab or maybe once you got out? That sort of puts you on the track you're on today, where you're you're you take your recovery seriously, and it's now pushed you into this clinical side, like you're talking about. Yeah, that's what I'm curious about. Coming from the 12 step world, like we do, what was it that piqued your interest to go into the LCDC field? Well, I'll say before before that, my fifth step. I did my <laughs> fifth step outside, and then. Outside of treatment, middle of the night in Waxahachie, I go back in. I talk to one of the techs for like an hour. It's like midnight. And I go back outside. And at this point, I was just doing the work. I felt a lot better. It feels Mm -hmm. good to get things off your chest, right? But I went outside and looked up and kind of always never really being that far out in the country and Mm -hmm. seeing the sky. I went, oh, something's bigger. 
wow. and then I felt peace, that little bit of serenity. You know, everyone talks about all the promises, but I feel like the fifth step ones get looked over. Yeah, but yeah. Look being the world able and I be alone at perfect peace and ease. Yeah, that being able to be alone at perfect peace and ease. I sat on my bed at night and I go, huh, I'm not anxious. I don't care. Mm-hmm. Everything's fine. It's fine. I'm, I'm actually getting chills right now with that because that's and I know in, what you're talking about. That's I, a huge deal. It doesn't sound big, but it's huge. And I'm 32 years old in a room on a twin bed with three other people who are asleep, and I go, everything's fine. And you were comfortable in your skin for the first time in your life. And dipping my toe into that little pool of serenity, I went, oh, I want more of that. Yeah. There and so point. that kept me in recovery and kept me going and kept me, rocketed me into this spiritual side of things, right? And just enjoying the fellowship and enjoying the people kept me plugged in. And then moving further, I went, well, I like this. Now I got the fellowship side, the social side, the the spiritual side. Mm-hmm. Let's study it. Yeah. And that's kind of what put me in. Because I was at also at a turning point. I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I wasn't going to go back into restaurants. I was in a new city for the first time in sober living. And I go, well, I guess I'll go back to school. Yeah. So I go, well, I guess I can study this. Yeah. And my counselor when i was in treatment told me that when he was in treatment that's when he figured out he wanted to be an lcdc so and i didn't really you. take was that it, seriously until later but later it was it you. passion was it like okay i want to be all in on this recovery both in life and in work and yeah yeah and i mean um you know i was living it and i was involved in the fellowship and i was working at the sober living i had been at and and i loved it and i go well why not do it for a living to some yeah. capacity because mm-hmm. I don't know. And that's also kind of an extra little piece of insurance, right? Because yeah. if I go out, I lose everything, right? <laughs> like for real. Yeah. Let, me, let me ask you something because coming from the 12-step background, right, the spiritual, yeah, and then now that you've been trained, you have an education in the clinical, what do you see as is there are there contrasts? Are you able to bridge the two? I think that's something that Heather and I talk about a lot is, is being able to bridge – because the clinical has some rock solid ground that it stands on, and so does the spiritual. And mm-hmm. do you have a, a problem being able to to bridge the two? No, and I think that there's a lot more alike than than people give them credit for. And a lot of times, it's people in the fellowship that kind of tend to discredit things. But I also think the reason that it is is because of the the laws and the rules around clinical things, where I can't cross boundaries with people. I can't force people. I can't encourage them to do a specific thing sometimes. But um, I also want to preface all this with I'm still very young in all of this. You right, know, I'm right. learning and learning. But um, the thing I love about it the most is that I think that they work tandem really well. I mean, if you look at a, a meeting in and of itself, it's 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 a group. It's yeah. a process group. It's yeah. just not led by a leader. But it works because everyone there has the same common experience, the way that a cancer group works or anything else. Like mm-hmm. supporting other people works. So being able to do that individually with one-on-one, I kind of take that idea into a session with a client where yeah. it's like I'm here to support you mm-hmm. and I'm coming from a place of experience where I think a lot of clinicians step back and they go, I'm the clinician, you're the person. Yeah. Mm. And I go, no, we're, we're kind of the same. I mean, it's, it's different, but I have the experience. And that's why I specifically work with – Alcoholics and addicts. Right. Do you ever find any frustration with the idea that the clinical or medical community doesn't adopt the language of the allergy and the obsession of the acute versus the chronic and everybody's the same in the clinical? That it's mild, moderate, severe, but no one is uh, chronic as (laughs) we know it. Ask the real question. Does it bug you as much as it bugs Heather (laughs) that they don't use the term craving? No, no, no. They Correctly. Don't, that's, we have our own language, and you're learning both languages. <laughs> yes. And, a counselor and I'll will you, say, rate your craving today, and in 12-step, that's not how we use that word. Yeah. And I'll tell you, it's the same thing with anything in the kind of medical field, or the fact <laughs> that they like use the DSM-5 in courts, and it's like, you have to grade this person on a scale, and it's like, nothing in life works like that. Right. Nothing in life is that rigid, especially something like 
addiction that is very complex. Yeah. And evidence and circumstantial based and environment based. Like mm-hmm. there's too many factors <laughs> to just grade it in such a, you know, moderate, severe, whatever. You right. know, there's three categories of alcoholism, right? Right. Whereas it's not really like that. But I, th- I get it where they need something on paper to yeah. maybe keep it organized or. Now, I was shocked. Insurance companies probably. <laughs> yeah. I, I was shocked I really when think I found so. out that a, a, a large majority of LCDCs are not actually drug addict alcoholics. Yeah, you don't have to be. You don't have to be even sober to get a recovery coach credential. Do you think that you really have helps to just be normal. you? Like, does that help you actually being in recovery? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, I, mean, I, I, I just wanted. I wanted to hear it. So, all right. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be right back. I think Heather has some hot seat I questions. I do. I do. I'm a fire, madam. All right. We'll be right back with Relevant Recovery Radio. Welcome back to Relevant Recovery Radio. That was so uncomfortable. Well, I just like I like the intros. I feel like you should come in on step. Uh, anyways, you listen to Relevant Recovery Radio, and I don't want us to forget that we're doing this for the Matthews Hope Foundation. If you or a loved one has an issue with addiction, please give them a call at 844-263-4673. Mm-hmm. That is the Matthews Hope Foundation or www.mhdrp.org. All right, I have hot seat Did I say that right? You did. I I deserve a round of applause. (laughs) Okay, yeah. uh All right, so Taylor got hot seat questions for you about your life and experience in the 12-step recovery world. Got it. Okay. Uh, How long did it take you to work all 12 steps? Um... Less than 30 days. Perfect. Wow. That's actually spectacular. I, love that. <laughs> I had nothing better to do. But, but let me ask you something uh, real quick. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put questions on them. You worked your steps in 30 days. Do you feel that that was good or bad? Well, it was great because I still had, by the time I finished my steps, I still had another 30 days left in rehab. No. That you could start living them out. And okay. they would make us lead groups and big books. Like they of taught service. us how to be good members of the fellowship and how to. The politics of it, how to introduce groups, what groups read, what the preamble is. Oh, that's fantastic. So you started like living the 12 steps before you ever left rehab. They taught us how to be good meeting attendees. Oh, I love it. I love it. All right. Next question. How many people have you sponsored? 10 10 to 12, maybe. There were a lot that, you know, you know how it goes. Well, better better yet. Mm -hmm. How many people have you read the beginning of the book to? How many people have you attempted to sponsor? Oh Ball, my God. Ballpark. Ballpark. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Perfect. What is your yeah. least favorite 12-step slogan? Put the plug in the jug. That one's the common one. Everybody does not like Listen, that one. Do you want to explain why? Let him explain why. It, it sucks. <laughs> it, just like we talked about earlier, this is such a complicated thing. So when people would say that to me, even sarcastically, yeah. it would fill me with rage. Because it's crazy if... If we understand the problem and and the literature, then if I had the ability to just put the plug in the jug and just not drink, I would not be in a twelve step fellowship. I would just go be sober. I yeah. went I went to a local a local club here yesterday at the noon meeting uh, to support a friend of mine who was getting a nine year chip. I went to this local club that rhymes with the no, O's no, Moke just, Ub. Just tell the story. Anyways, uh, there's a guy in there that has 
50 plus years of sobriety. And they're talking about step three and they're talking about like God and all that. Anyways, his thing was, y'all are complicating this. I don't know why. I love sitting in meetings. Y'all complicated. He goes, there's three rules. I'm, and I'm, I'm going to summarize it huge. Other, otherwise, Hitler, Hitler will get mad. Um, one, just don't drink and you won't get drunk. Just don't drink. That's rule number one. Just don't drink. Rule number two, go to meetings. Rule number three, oh, there is no, no rule number three. Just do those two things. And I almost came out of my skin. Yeah. I mean, it's the only reason this problem is it can kill someone who can't do that. Exactly. And as complicated as things like addiction and alcoholism is, I do believe that the solution is simple. Yeah. But I don't believe when you say something sarcastic like that, I think it makes light of the simplicity. Right. Because, and what I said, and I said it very friendly because then like they called on me and I'm like, please don't call me. And he called on me. But I did it in a very kind and loving way, which was if I could just not drink, I wouldn't be here. Right. Because I would be at home just not drinking and watching Netflix. Yeah, I've been trying, dude. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like I'm dying trying. All right. right. Back to Taylor's hot seat questions. Yeah. Uh, what's the quickest you've ever seen someone get through all 12 steps and recover? Anyone? Oh, man. I don't know. Maybe three weeks. Okay. Um, people I was in treatment with. That's great. As you recovered, when did you begin to feel a spiritual connection? Um, very gradually. I don't know if there was like a moment. It just kind of, I kept my head down. I did what I needed to do. And then I looked up months later and I went, life's actually good. I'm and actually And you kind of answered a minute ago with that fist step a Exactly. Moment. I got a little taste of serenity and then I kept going for it. And I didn't really realize I was trying to seek spirituality yeah. fulfillment. I just didn't want to be an unhappy, depressed scumbag yeah. anymore. And I looked up and I wasn't. And so based on your life today- Mm -hmm. Okay. If you could take a pill that takes you back in time and you are not an alcoholic. Would you do it? Would you do it? No, because I'd be sober and depressed and a scumbag. <laughs> um, I, I was so sick and tired and physically in pain from the drinking. But what hurt me the most was how depressed sober. I was at my incomprehensible level of demoralization. Yeah. I, I had it. become a yeah. total scumbag. I wanted to be not a scumbag more than I wanted to be not drunk, probably, if you could weigh it. <laughs> So you're saying that if that was taken away, you wouldn't have an, have the opportunity to, live to the life let have. the internal clear up, let the internal get right, and live the life of service we get to live today. Yeah. When you hear people say grateful recovered alcoholic, that was another thing that used to make me mad before I got sober because why would you be grateful? I'm dying and I hate this. Now, I hate and, these meetings. And, and now you dumb. get it. And now I get it because most people don't do the work that the steps get us. Most people fix problems in their lives, but they don't fix all of them. Like yeah. this right. is kind of like a, it's a new way of living. I mean, or they go far enough to get the external fixed and never finish the, the internal. Inside. Yeah. The emotional sobriety part. Yeah. I like not being miserable. Did Isn't you? Isn't it great? <laughs> I did too. <laughs> did you ever have an amend that you did not want to make, but did you make it? Ooh. Yeah. All of them. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, some Amen. were like obviously easy, but um, there, there, look, there's still some that I need to make and there's a couple on that list that I don't know how, yeah. Um, yeah. and they're very big, you know, but um, a lot of the big amends I had to make, you know, aside from just saying the thing, like what was most important to me with, you know, especially like ones with my sister or things like that was like making sure that I lived it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, 
because like even if you make a proper amends, I think, and, and you know, don't apologize and give them a chance to speak and do all the thing and be sincere, I still think the action behind it is what's most important, right? Living like, it out later. Yeah. I so be... you're considering them in that. You're like cons- I like I need to make this amends to them, but it sounds like you're really considering them. Like how how do I do this? How do I best yeah. serve them? I need to clean up my past, right? So I need to apologize or, you know, I need to make amends for everything that has happened, but then I need to continue to be that person in the future, right? Yeah. So yeah. me, like, being a good brother, for example, and including my sister, is, like, part of that. I always heard it was taught you can't make amends for unchanged behavior. You don't get to go say, hey, I'm making amends for treating you this way, and then next week treat you that way. I have to live out the changed behavior. When are you yeah. going to change? Next question. <laughs> on, on what step do you lose the most sponsees? Um uh, one or three. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite step or big book quote and why? Um, well, my favorite big book quote is at the end of page 124, and it's like, see to it that your dark past is the greatest possession you have. It's the key to life and happiness for other people. Mm. Um, that was one of the ones that, you know, before I wanted to work it, I decided I'd actually read it and give it a shot. And when I got to that page... I had so much self-pity and guilt and shame and depression. And when I read that, I go, so you're telling me that all this is the best thing that I got? <laughs> and it made sense to me. Okay, um, cool. So I have a question. I don't have time for your questions. I see that you have tattoos. <laughs> yes. If I work in the industry, could I get a neck tattoo? Would that be okay? Which industry? In, in an, if I got an LCDC, could I have a neck tattoo? Sure. Yeah. Hands, knuckles, it would be okay? It's fine with me. I think I'm making a career change. All right, change. next, next uh, question. Bill or Bob? Oh, Bob, 100%. Um, <laughs> why? Why? I don't, I, I hate a Bill story because of that white light experience. Remember, <laughs> anti-spiritual. So I go, I hear that and I go, nope. bull crap. Right. But Bob goes, I lost my privileges. Yeah. I don't get to do this. And he goes, and why I continue to stay sober is he, you know, he gives the four reasons. Sense of duty. And I go, oh, it's his job. Mm-hmm. I, I understand get to work. You get okay. that. Okay. I, I love that. I understand losing privileges. That what made sense answer. to me. I yeah. love that answer. Yeah. All right. Got a couple questions left. What's your the greatest gift you've gotten out of sobriety? What's the greatest gift? Peace of mind. Peace of mind. Um, no anxiety for the most part. You know. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Like the, this program's removed it for me. Uh, what's your top asset, your top defect? Um, man, my top defect still being over analytical. Um, but the top asset asset I have now is is the listening skills that the program taught me. Mm. That wasn't something that was a part of my life before. Yeah, you know, which in turn sprouted more empathy and compassion, and you know, things I didn't have. Yeah, me too. I'm developing empathy uh, in sprouting. So learn skill. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you so much for being on here, Taylor. We've had a great time getting to no, know thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, don't forget, those who stand for nothing will fall for anything. Hashtag God, though. <laughs> <laughs>